Uh, it's such a, a real honor and a privilege to be with you guys today, and um, it just kind of happened and worked out that I could be here on this Sunday. We didn't know at the time uh, that this would be the Whitesmith's uh, final Sunday with you guys, and uh, uh, it's a huge privilege to be here and to be a part of Antioch. I actually feel like I'm kind of coming home today. A um, couple of reasons. Uh, I've been hearing about you guys for seven years. Um, actually, uh, Ken and I have had many conversations about the local church. And uh, one of the things that's always impressed me about Ken and his ministry is that he's a local church pastor with a global church focus. Um, we, when you're involved in ministry, involved in conferences, you meet a lot of pastors, and often it's the other way around. They're global focused and not really that bothered about the local context. And in Ken, what we've discovered over the years is a man who's flipped that around and said, no, actually, my passion is the local church, Antioch. Uh, and what I do is I go out into the global church and bring uh, stories and messages uh, and theology birthed out of the context of a local church. You know, the, a pastor doesn't just shape a church, but the church also shapes the pastor. And I, I want to just, first of all, before I say anything today, say thank you to you guys. Because, um, and this might sound a bit strange, it might sound a bit out there, but um, I feel emotional coming here today. I, it, I, it felt like coming home. You guys showed the video. You know the video that you see right at the beginning of your service, the countdown video? Uh, we play that at our church. Um, I just heard in the video that you guys did that you guys started meeting in Regal Cinema or something like that, right? So the first place that the Vine started meeting 20 years ago was the Regal Hotel. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're connected, buddy, on levels that you never knew. Um, and, but, but here's the thing. Uh, I want to say it like this, your church has made our church better. And if you stop and think about that for a sec, that's a pretty incredible thing. This is Bend, Oregon. I live in Hong Kong, lived there 32 years now. Your church has made our church better because you guys have had a vision that is based in the kingdom of God and not based in just your local context. Um, a lot of churches um, don't have that vision. I want to say thank you to your eldership. I don't know who the elders are here. Um, but I want to say thank you for the elders that are in the room today because you've had a generosity of spirit that's only founded in a kingdom mentality. And you've realized and understood Ken's ministry and you've sent him out. And you guys as the church have shaped that ministry because the church shapes the pastor. You've shaped his ministry. And that has been a huge blessing to the Vine Church. Uh, Pete said, you know, we have 51 different native languages. We have a very multicultural church. Uh, many of the people some seven years ago had very little understanding of God's theology of justice and what the scriptures say about God's heart for justice. And over the last six years that Ken has been visiting and preaching and teaching both in the conference and in the context of our pulpit on a Sunday, I know that our church has a much deeper understanding of justice than it ever had before, largely because of Ken's ministry. So thank you for your generosity. Thank you for sending him out. Um, I also want to say thank you to Tamara. Where are you, Tamara? You're over here somewhere. Um, I recognize the sacrifice that you've paid uh, to allow Ken to travel the way that he has. And that's for your kids, too. There's a sacrifice to... Yeah, can we... Um... I was... Uh... I was up at four in the morning this morning with jet lag like crazy. I got in from Hong Kong two days ago, 
And uh, I was texting my wife, and she was sort of, you know, saying like, wow, we miss you and me and my daughter, you know. And, and I just realized it reminded me again of the sacrifice that there is in, in over the many years that you've sent Ken out. And we've been a huge blessed by that and by your sacrifice, so thank you. Um, I want to I share some short um, some stories and some thoughts of you guys today. I could wax lyrical about Ken for 30 minutes. Um, I'm not going to do that, don't worry. Um, I probably only last about 25, though, Ken. I'd only get about 25 out. Um, but uh, I, I want to I talk about transition, um, because all of us are in transition today. I, I want to speak specifically to Ken and Tamara, but I also want to speak to Pete and Jen. And I want to humbly speak to you guys. And, I, you know, like I say, I'm, it's my first time here, but I have some things I want to share that are on my heart about what Pete just spoke about as he introduced me, about the tensions that there are in transition seasons. And Antioch is in a transition season. Uh, Ken and Tamara are transiting and also Pete and Jen, as they step into their sole leadership here at Antioch, they're also transiting. And these are key moments in life, but they're not easy moments. And I want to shape this by, by sharing a story from my life. So um, I actually have a phobia. Um, it's a clinically defined phobia that I have. I'm phobic of the ocean. That's kind of strange, right? Um, I, I don't mind uh, floating on the ocean on a boat. I don't mind walking by the ocean and kind of dipping my, my toes in the water. But the idea of swimming in an ocean fills me with complete dread. Now, I, I'm not exactly sure how this all started, but I think it might have taken place when I, was, when I was about eight years old and my parents allowed me to watch the movie Jaws. <laughs> and I, I, I also have a mild phobia for cello music, by the way. Um, but uh, I... Um, I watched this movie, Jaws, with two pillows in front of my face as an eight-year-old. And every time this shark came on, I would be totally freaked out. And, and my parents thought this was a good idea. And from that moment onwards, I've been phobic of the ocean. I love Bend because you're nowhere near the ocean. <laughs> Praise God. I came here feeling right at home straight away. I live in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is made up of 232 islands. I live on one of those islands. I have to get a ferry to my church. When I go in. So, so I'm surrounded by water all the time. And when you grow up in that city, all the kids love the ocean. I never swam in it at all. And uh, from the age of 8 to 15, didn't go in the ocean. At the age of 15, though, my family, we were on a, a trip, uh, a holiday time, in the Seychelles, which is a little island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. My parents had a great sense of humor. They thought that would be a great place to take me for holiday. And so we end up in this, this Seychelles, this island, and uh, we're at this resort, and I walk into the resort, and there's a sign up, and it says, the one day scuba diving experience. And I decided the best thing that I could do to overcome my fear of the ocean with, with this thing called flooding, it's to immerse yourself in the context of which you're scared about, um, and, and through that, you'll be able to kind of overcome it. So I, I said to my parents, I want to do the one day scuba diving experience, and they were like, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. You're phobic of the ocean. It's clinically defined for you. You're, you know, you're mad. And I'm like, no, no, seriously, I think this might help me. And they're like, okay, okay. So they signed me up. And now, now the day was structured like this. We had a one hour of classes, first of all. Now, let me summarize what they said in this one hour of class about scuba diving. They basically said this. When you're in the water, do not have a moment of uncertainty. And I thought to myself, that's pretty much the only thing I'm imagining doing when I'm in the water, is having lots of moments of uncertainty. But that was it. You know, one hour, no moments of uncertainty. We then went into the swimming pool, 
<laughs> and whilst all the other guests were swimming around on the surface, we were all scuba diving down in the bottom of the swimming pool. And we were practicing, you know, what happens when the regulator gets ripped out of your mouth or how do you take your goggles off and put them back on again underwater and all that. And so we were doing this for a couple of hours. And I, and I found out that I was actually a pretty good scuba diver, that I, I could swim well, I could get under the water, I could do all the stuff. I was a good scuba diver. That gave me a little bit of confidence. We had lunch. And then after lunch, the idea was get in this boat, go about 300 yards out from the shore, about 30 meters of water. And the idea was to drop the anchor rope. And then there was about 15 of us. We were going to go down the anchor rope to about 30 meters in depth. We're going to swim around for 20 minutes and come back. And that was our one-day scuba diving experience. I get in this boat after lunch. And as you can imagine, my heart rate is going like 160 beats a minute. I'm like sweating. I've got this like cold sweat on me. And they, they buddy us up with like a dive buddy. So I'm buddied up with this French guy. And this French guy doesn't speak hardly a word of English. I hardly speak a word of French. And, but I think by looking at me, he can see that I'm absolutely terrified. And so he looks at me. He's like, uh, uh, in the water, no moment of uncertainty. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, no, don't worry. I'm fine. I'm kind of gripping the side of the boat. So we get out about 300 yards. And they drop this anchor rope, and the water is beautiful. It's clear, it's nice. And I haven't been in the ocean since I was eight years old. And everybody's like dropping down you know, into the water and swimming out towards the anchor rope. I'm the last guy to get in. The French guy's like, you know, trying to encourage me in. And I get in, I get in the water, and I'm, fear is totally over me. And I'm just like feeling it and everything. And I, I wade out towards this anchor rope, and my French buddy, dive buddy, he goes down. And I'm like, well, this is the moment of truth, right? Either I'm going to be courageous in this moment or I'm going to fail and I'm going to just go back to the boat. And I prayed and I said, God, give me, give me the strength to face this fear. And I didn't hear anything from God in that moment. But I, <laughs> nice, thanks, God. I, in my most desperate hour. No, uh, so I let the air out and I started to float down this anchor rope. I get about five meters down in the water and I see a movement on my right-hand side. Now, when you're scuba diving, you can't just go like, oh, you kind of like have to kind of float like this. And so I see this movement. I'm kind of like floating like this. And a shark swims past me on my right-hand side, swims down towards the other scuba divers, and then swims off into the distance. Moments of uncertainty. I'm in the water five minutes, and the one thing that I fear the most swims past me on the right, goes down towards the other swimmers, and then swims off into the horizon. I'd like to say I was a real man about the situation, but I wasn't. I panicked which you weren't supposed to do. Luckily, I was only about five meters down. So I rushed to the surface of the water, no bends or anything, because it wasn't that deep. I swam as fast as I could back to the boat. And the Seychelles boat boy is there looking like, what's going on? And I, I kind of get to the side of the boat and he leans over, he grabs me and he pulls me up and he puts me on the base of the boat and I'm lying there and I rip out my regulator, I rip off my goggles and I'm about to shout, shark, shark! And he leans over me, he's like, hey man, did you see the dolphin? <laughs> yeah, I saw the dolphin. I wanted to make sure you saw it. Did you, did you see the dolphin? You know? <laughs> True story. It's interesting, right? I've reflected on that moment many times. Here's the interesting thing. It's amazing how a fear from the past 
can distort the reality of our present. It's amazing to me how God, within five minutes of me entering the water, sent me the most beautiful water mammal that there is. It's almost like God was saying, welcome back, Andrew. But my fear of the past, my understanding of the past, the things that had kind of hooked me back here, had such a profound impact on my present that I was able to distort a dolphin and turn it in that moment into a shark. One of the things that we find in moments of transition and moments of change is that so often the past can have a profound impact on our present, so much so that sometimes it actually can distort what is actually really happening. I don't know about you guys, but when I face moments of transition in my life, it is very often the past that I go back to to enable me to find an anchor point in where I'm at. But I've actually come to see that I think we might have that wrong. And I want to talk a little bit about that as we think about the transition that we're all in today. One of the things that I, I hate the most in Hong Kong is cocktail parties. It's a big thing in Hong Kong. I don't know if you guys do cocktail parties in Bend. I'd imagine you probably do something else like barbecues, backyard barbecues or something. But we do cocktail parties, and it's the way you get to know new people. And so I, I go to these cocktail parties, and in Hong Kong, the great question that everybody asks is, what do you do? That's like, do you guys do that here? No, you probably ask about your family first, right? Or something like that, where you're from or something. Hong Kong is, what do you do? That's the, Hong Kong's a very capitalistic, very materialistic, very kind of consumeristic, very much you know, career-driven place. So everybody wants to put you on a social hierarchy. They're not actually interested in what you do. They just want to know whether they're above you or below you in the social hierarchy. So what do you do is a great question. It's like, oh, well, I'm a teacher. Oh, really? I'm a lawyer. So I'm a little bit higher than you on that social. That's kind of the deal. And I hate cocktail parties because I know when I meet someone, within about 10 or so, maybe 30 seconds, that question will come up, what do you do? And no one wants to meet a pastor. Like, pastors don't even like, enter on that scale. Like, people in Hong Kong have no idea where to put me. And, and, and the thing is, like, they, they either have one or two kind of reactions. One is, they think I'm like a Jedi master and I can read their minds. And it's like, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for kind of stuff. And they're like, well... Or, or on the other side, they think like, I'm a multi-level salesman and I'm going to try to sell them all this stuff, right? Try to convince them in Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life within about, you know, three minutes. And, and so they freak out and they don't want anything to do with me. So I, I've noticed and I've learned that when I get asked the question, so what do you do? I don't tell them I'm a pastor anymore. I literally answer the question. I tell them what I do. And so here's what I say. I say, I get the great privilege of being invited into the very worst moments of people's lives, and I get to sit with them in it. That always opens up a conversation. See, it's true. Pastors don't get emails from their congregation when they get a promotion. None of you guys email Pete when you're on holiday in Hawaii to tell him how great it is. We reach out to our pastors when things are not well, when things are struggling, when there are changes and transitions and things that aren't healthy or the worst moments of life. Those are the times when we reach out to our pastors and pastors love that. That's what we're wired for. We want to sit with people in the hard times and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain. In the last year, I've sat with a mother as she holds her dead child in her arms. I've rushed out of my house at three in the morning because one of our congregation members has just found out that her husband is cheating on her. And just three months ago, I sat with a family as they were trying to come to the realization, get their head around the fact that their teenage daughter had committed suicide. I mean, the very worst moments of life. When you spend enough time with people in the worst moments of life, you get to learn something about humanity. 
And here's what I've discovered. There are some Christians that can face some of the deepest challenges of life, some of the worst moments, and yet after a time of healing can actually go on and flourish again. And there are some Christians who face some of the toughest moments of life and never seem to ever overcome them. And the great question is, what's the difference between these two groups of people? I think part of the answer lies in the direction in which you live your life. I want to unpack that thought with us a little bit today because it has something to say about the transition that we're all in this morning. In any given moment of your life, there are three paradigms that are impacting you and working on you. Your past, your present, and your future. And every single one of us in every single moment of life, we're moving towards our future. That's the great thing about life. But your past and your present and your future are always the three paradigms that are working on you in any given moment. And the question is, which paradigm is influencing you the most as you move towards the future? And here's what I've discovered. I've discovered that most of us walk into our futures facing backwards. What I mean by that is we're literally walking into our futures facing the past Allowing the past to be the primary paradigm that shapes our understanding of our present and moves us to the future. Does that make sense to you? Now, now, think about this for a second. If you walk into your future facing backwards, it's kind of hard to realize exactly where you're going. Now, don't get me wrong. The past is not wrong. The past is not bad. We, we learn so much from the past. We understand so much from it. The scriptures talk to us so beautifully about how Israel honored their past, setting memorial stones so they could remember the great things that God had done in their lives. The past has influenced all of us and shaped us. We learn from it. We grow from it. It's great. The question, though, is why is it that we often allow the past to be the primary paradigm that impacts our present. And here's what I've discovered. Those of us that face some of the hard moments in life, some of the deep moments of uncertainty and struggle to ever overcome, it's because largely we are walking into our futures, allowing the past to be the primary paradigm that impacts our present. Is this making sense to you? And here's the amazing thing. For those people that I've sat with in the worst moments of life and have been able to go on to flourish, I've noticed that they've learned to live life in a different direction. They've learned to live life walking into their future facing forwards, deciding that God's word, that God's promises, that the things that God is saying to them about what is ahead for them, that those are going to be the things that will be the primary paradigm that impacts their present. Not ignoring the past, not giving up on it, not turning their backs on it, understanding, learning, and growing from it, but choosing the future, choosing God's promises and his purposes, his words spoken over them, the things that he's calling them into, choosing those things to be the primary thing that shapes who they are today and moves them into the future. These ones have found the ability to go and flourish even out of the moments of greatest uncertainty. And what has really encouraged me as I've sat with Ken and his ministry over the last seven years, as I've seen my church profoundly impacted by that ministry and has grown and changed because of it, I've noticed that Ken is someone who's learned to live his life facing forwards. One of the things that greatly admires me about what Ken and Tamara are doing in this moment is that they've realized that God has called them and asked them to do something new. That's never an easy thing. It's something that God does in Scripture a lot by the Holy Spirit working on the people that he calls, calling them into a new context or a new situation. But just because God calls and just because the Holy Spirit's on it does not then mean it's going to be easy. 
And there are going to be great transition challenges for you guys. And you know what some of those are. There's probably others that you're not yet sure what's just right there in front of you. But Ken and I believe Tamara have learned what it is to walk into their future facing forwards to say, we, we don't know exactly what is going to be ahead, but we're going to allow that to be the primary thing that shapes who we are today. When you walk into your future facing backwards, you don't need faith. You need faith when you're deciding to walk into your future facing forwards, asking God to give you an understanding of what it is that's right ahead for you. This idea of walking into your future facing forwards is a scriptural one, it's a biblical one. In fact, I would argue that it's actually the primary way that the scriptures call us to live our lives, to look forward to the things that God has. I want to read a couple of examples for you this morning as I just kind of try to center what I'm saying in scripture together. So we're going to open the scriptures, if that's all right. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9, uh, and I want to read out of verse 57. And these are some challenging words of Jesus that I think he wants us to hear together as we think about how we're moving forwards, whether we're going to move forwards facing backwards or whether we're going to move forwards facing forwards. In Luke 9, verse 57, it says this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, well, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Sounds like a perfectly fine request, doesn't it? Verse 62, Jesus replied, no one. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These are strong words, church. This is not the warm, cuddly, fuzzy Jesus. This is the tough Jesus. This is the Jesus that got into people's faces and said some pretty strong things and challenged them to live life in a certain way. And here he says this thing. He says, no one who puts their hands on a plow and looks back over their shoulders are fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, you cannot walk into your future facing backwards. You cannot plow a field in a straight line using Jesus' imagery, constantly looking over your shoulder, constantly looking back to where you've come. If you do that, you're going to be plowing all over the place. If you really want to see the kingdom of God come, if you really want to see this thing grow and flourish, put your hands on the plow and face forwards. Have your future be the primary paradigm that shapes this current context. And I want to say in all humility to Ken and Tamara, I want to encourage but hopefully challenge you guys. Jesus is saying, put your hand on this plow and don't look back over your shoulder. Again, in that, I'm not saying that you don't take what you've encountered here building this church and this community with you. Of course you do. You learn from it. You grow from it. But I believe that the word for you is that there's a time now to put your hand on that plow and start to move facing forwards. I would even say that for Pete as well, Pete and Jen and the ministry that they've got here now. Pete, I want to encourage you that although you look back to all the incredible things that you've done in your ministry so far, all the things that you've learned from Ken and experienced in him, but also now as you step into this soul leadership role, you step in with your hands on that plow looking forwards. And can I say for you as Antioch that that's your call as well, to celebrate Ken and Tamara, to to celebrate the incredible things that have happened in your relationship with them and how they've shaped you and you've shaped them. And that's great, and that's what we do today. But also, as we go forward, 
Your role is to cheer them on in their new context, hoping that they will go forwards, facing forwards, and for you guys to walk forwards in that way too. Now, now Jesus' words, they sound strong and harsh here, but he's actually pulling from a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to really try to help them to understand this concept of what it is to move forward in life. He's drawing from the amazing moment in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah anoints Elisha for a new time and a new ministry. And I want to read you that passage as well and connect it to that New Testament scripture of Jesus in Luke 9 to to kind of further show what I think is on Jesus' heart here as he calls his disciples into the kingdom. So in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 19, it says this, So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him, and then Elisha, um, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, then I will come with you. Does that remind you of something? It's exactly the same thing that Jesus was speaking into with the disciples. Verse 21, so Elisha left him and went back. Oh, sorry, uh, before that it says, go back, Elijah replied. What have I done for you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned his plowing equipment to cook meat and give it to the people, and they ate. And then they set out from there to follow Elijah, and he became his attendant. Put yourself in Elisha's shoes here. This is a random moment of life. We're not told much of a backstory about Elisha in the Scriptures. This is all we're told, in fact, before he goes into his ministry. And what we see here is just simply that he has a field. He has 12 yokes of oxen, which defines him actually in that context as a wealthy and successful person. He has 12 yoke of oxen, which was a lot. He has his own land, and he's tending to it, fielding it. So this was a successful person and wealthy in the context of his day. And he's going about doing what he did every day. He's in his ordinary, if you will. This is Elisha's life. And then suddenly out of the blue, this random guy shows up, Elijah, throws his cloak over him, doesn't say anything to him, doesn't give him any background or any story, just puts his cloak over him and then walks off. Can you imagine what that would be like for Elisha, right? It'd be like, whoa, (laughs) what just happened there? And I'm sure Elisha would have understood that that passing of a cloak, that, that mantle suggested that Elijah was calling him into something new passing on his prophetic ministry to Elisha, for Elisha then to go and become his attendant. But Elijah, Elisha in this moment is just in the ordinary, and God shows up and interrupts him. And I think this is so often how God works with us in our lives. He comes and he interrupts our ordinary, and he calls us towards the extraordinary. That's what God does. It's his heart. And what amazes me here is that Elisha is free enough Despite his wealth, despite his success, despite his, what he's got around him and he's worked hard for it, he's still free enough to respond when God calls him out of the blue. One of the things that so profoundly inspires me with what Ken and Tamara are doing in this season, and I, I want to just say this honestly to you, Ken, what, what inspires me is that you have this ability in your ordinary in your everyday life, in this church that you've built, a place where, to be honest with you, there's, there's a safety and security and a comfort to your ministry. This place here, 
And God can come in there and call you to something that's very undefined, something that feels like a total thing out there that's going to take lots of faith. And you're free enough, mate, to respond to that. That inspires me. Because I have to be honest with you, I think if God came and did this to me in my context of the vine in Hong Kong and everything that we're doing, I don't know if I'd be able to respond in the way that Ken has responded to the call of God. And I, I find that inspiring and challenging at the same time. I wonder whether that inspires but also challenges you too. The question I'm asking myself is, am I free enough to respond in my ordinary when God calls me to? Now Elisha, he responds and he, he runs after Elijah, which is understandable because Elijah's just thrown his cloak over him and kind of walked off. So Elisha runs after him and, and, he, and he says, hey, 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 what kind of what's going on? You know, like, what do I need to do? And he says, look, let me just kiss my mother and father goodbye before I, before I come with you. That sounds, again, like a very reasonable request. And Elijah's response is classic. He's like, what have I done to you? <laughs> It's like, what do you mean what you've done to me? You've just thrown your cloak over me and you're doing it. And, and basically Elijah's response to Elijah here is this. I'm not the one who's calling you. It's not, it's not me who's doing this. God is the one who's at work here. God is the one that's calling you. Your response, your, your, the way that you are to move now is in relation to what he's doing for you, not, not what I'm doing for you. See, it's, it's not Village Baptist that's called Ken and Tamara. It's God. It's not Antioch that's now calling Pete to step into his role. It's God. And, and it's not even Pete standing before you guys calling you into a new season. It's God, I believe, standing before you guys and calling you guys into a new season here at Antioch. It's God at work, and we glorify him and celebrate that. And that's amazing. And as we see God at work, what does Elisha do? Having understood that it's not Elijah, but it's the Almighty that's calling him into something brand new. What does he do? Well, we don't find out in the text whether he actually goes and kisses his mother and father goodbye. I'm sure he does. I hope he does. What we get in the text is something completely different. Here's what Elisha does. He goes back to his context and he slaughters his oxen, all 24 of them, 12 yoked together, 12 yokes of them, 24. He slaughters them all. He takes all of his wooden farming equipment. He burns it up. He creates this big fire. He cooks the meat. He then gives that meat to all of those who are in his community, giving them and blessing them with the things that he had received from his hard labor. And he burns it all up. And then he moves forward and follows Elijah. I think when Jesus was speaking to the disciples and those crowds around him and saying anyone who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom, he's thinking about the ministry of Elisha. He's thinking about the amazing model that Elisha provides here. That Elisha takes the very things that would hold him rooted to his past and Elisha decides, I don't want to walk into my future facing backwards. And he takes those things and he burns it up, and then he is free to walk into his future facing forwards. I remember when I was called, I was in investment banking, in an investment banking career for many years before I became a pastor. And God called me out of my ordinary into something else that he had for me. And it took me two years to make that decision to change. So I'm not as quick as Ken and Tamara. Two years. And, and at the end of that two-year period, I finally decided to quit my job and everything. And, and we moved to New Zealand where my wife's from. And we studied, both of us, full-time in seminary for five, uh, four years. And about a year and a half into seminary, we realized that we had no more money 
because we were both self-funding ourselves through seminary. We had some savings from the career that I had uh, in the corporate world, but a year and a half in, that money was gone, and we had basically no money left. It was the, the poorest moment of our lives that we've ever been in. And in that moment, I remember the week um, we, we were walking around, and Chris, my wife, wanted to buy some salt because the food on campus where we were living was so bad. She wanted to buy salt to be able to salt up the food a bit and get some flavor in it. Perfect normal request. But I said, we cannot afford to buy salt, honey. We're going to steal it from the campus instead. <laughs> good, good Christian man that I am. But it was honestly, we cannot afford to buy salt. We'll steal it from the campus. That'll be what we'll do. That very week, I get an email from my ex-boss at Morgan Stanley, the investment bank where I was at. And it's a year and a half later, after I'd quit, he sends me an email that same week. And he says, Andrew, we want you back. Oh, we, haven't, we haven't been able to hire someone, and we want you to come back. And, and, and he listed in this email all the promotion and the extra money and all the other benefits that he was going to give us. And my wife and I, we sat there reading that email, salivating. I mean, this was the opportunity of a lifetime to step out of this seminary thing, which, to be honest, felt like a bit like a cemetery half the time. We had no money. Uh, our food was bland and horrible. And, and here's this, like, carrot dangling in front of us saying, hey, if you just quit and go back to Hong Kong, you can have all of this. I remember sharing with our friends at the time and showed them the email, and they are like, oh, man, isn't Satan such a punk? You know, isn't the enemy such a, so annoying that he would kind of tempt you away from the call of God on your life? And I realized this was not the enemy tempting me. This was God asking me a very important question. Have you burnt it all up, Andrew? Or are you going to go back to the vine and be a pastor, but constantly be looking back over your shoulder, thinking of all the things that you've given up and what could have been? It was God challenging me right at the midway point of my seminary study. Is you really going to put your hands on the plow and not look back? Ken and Tamara, as you go into the future, this church is cheering you on. My church in Hong Kong, we're cheering you on. And what an exciting adventure you guys are heading on. And I want to encourage you guys just to grab a hold of that plow and don't look back. God's got something incredible for you guys right ahead of you. And it's an amazing thing. Pete, I want to encourage you, bro. Where are you, Pete? You were over there. I don't even know. Maybe you're backstage. Anyway, I want to encourage you, Pete, that you are to put your hand on the plow and not turn around and look back. And look, Pete, I want to say this. There's going to be some courageous things you'll need to do in this new time. You may have to take some of the old farming equipment and burn it up. I believe that God is going to give Pete a vision and a heart, and he's going to shape things in Pete's heart and the eldership heart here for the new season and Peter, I want to encourage you to put your hand on that plow and not look back. And can I just humbly say to you guys as a church here, this context here in Antioch, I think you guys have an amazing opportunity now to stand together as a community in this new season and to honor and respect and celebrate and be filled with all the great things that the past has done. But you as a church now also are called to put your hands on that plow and move forward in this new season and not look back. And allow yourselves the energy and the focus and allow the future of Antioch, not the past of Antioch, the future of Antioch to be the primary paradigm that shapes this present reality. And maybe if you do that, you will not turn dolphins into sharks for the glory of Christ. Can I pray for you guys? Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful. We're so grateful that today we stand together as a community 
around the world, both here in Bend and my community in Hong Kong, who are praying and cheering this moment on as well. Lord, we stand together as a global church today in honor of a man and a family who have poured their lives into this context and out of that have poured their lives globally. And Father, we pray for Ken and Tamara as they now shift into a new season, as they move forward knowing that the Lord has called them. Father, I pray you'd give them the courage and the faith to put their hands on that plow. Lord, we thank you for Pete and Jen and the great gifts that sit upon them. Lord, we thank you that you've now positioned them to be in the sole leadership here. And Father, I believe you're going to be giving vision and hope and new dreams and new ideas, all the right things, because you've placed a cloak now upon Pete and you are sending him out now. And Father, I pray you would release him and that you would fill him with the courage and the faith needed to to put his hand on that plow and not look back. And Lord, for each person in this room, Lord, where this message applies to this church context, but it also may apply to their personal lives. Lord, there may be some people in here that are facing difficult decisions in their lives, transitions in their workplaces, things happening in their families that are weighing heavily upon them. Maybe some in this room are facing some of the worst moments of life like we talked about earlier. Father, I pray now, Lord, that in this word they would have something that they could take away and just sit on this week. And that, Father, you would encourage them greatly that you have an amazing future just ahead. And that, Father, the future of your word and your promise, of what you say about them, is to speak louder than their current context can scream. And, Lord, I pray that would be a blessing to them as well. And, Lord, we thank you for this. And we sit under your ministry. We ask your Holy Spirit uh, to fill us with great hope in this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone says, Amen. Hey, thanks so much, guys, for having me today.